you've ever read the newspaper and paid attention to the advertisements in it, you will understand immediately when I say that a good number, perhaps a majority of advertisements in our culture and the popular media play on the idea of security. You know, even those advertisements that talk about um, having good breath and uh, maintaining a proper um, social, um, how can we say this delicately? <laughs> those advertisements that talk about personal hygiene are playing on the idea of security. People want security, know they're going to be acceptable, they're going to be all right. You buy the right kind of radio tires, the right kind of snow tires, whatever it may be, because you want to be safe on the highway. You have the right kind of medication, because you want to be safe and have good health. Um, admit all these advertisements of security, and I think worries over uh, feelings of insecurity. Our society obviously would like to know what is stable, what is trustworthy, and what one can have a confident spirit of what can today's man be really sure? Why should someone feel safe and secure in this? What finally is dependable? What carries a genuine guarantee? You know, it was thoughts of insecurity that troubled Martin Luther so terribly. Luther was not sure that he was right with God. And so Luther became a monk, and a very devoted one, a hard-working one. And one who, for all outward appearances, should be very secure in his place in the church and thereby his place in God's kingdom and thereby his place before the throne of God. But it didn't work that way. Of course, Luther had the wrong theology, had the wrong outlook, it didn't help. He had the wrong spiritual practices, the wrong concept of piety. Luther was just wrong. But Luther tried and tried and tried and tried. You know, he later confessed that he was no good for his neighbor. He was no good for loving his neighbor because he had not yet learned how to love God. He did not have security in his salvation, and lacking that security, he was no good for anything else of spiritual service. I wonder what you feel secure about today. It would be interesting uh, if we could read minds. I don't think it would do any good for us to ask you to... Uh, Confess to all your friends here in this room, what, what are the things that you feel are most stable in your life? What are the things you can count on? Because you know, you'd all know the right answers and you'd say the right things. And they're always socially acceptable. But I mean, in your heart of hearts, what is it you really depend on? What is it? And when everything else gets shaky in your life, you say, I know that's going to stick. I know that's reliable. I wonder for how many here we could actually say, I am sure that I'm going to be saved. I'm sure that I'm right with God. I'm sure that my day-to-day -day life, my walk with God, is of such a close and intimate character. I know because of the growth and holiness that I can visibly see, I know because of that internal witness of the Spirit, that I belong to a faithful Savior. I wonder how many, is, how many of us are sure that we'll be saved. Well, just on the outside possibility that there are a few here who would like to know a little bit more about that subject, I've decided I'd like to preach this morning in Genesis, the 25th chapter, verses 27 to 34. This is Father's Day, after all, and I'm not going to bring you a Father's Day sermon. I'm going to bring you a sermon about sons, two of them in particular, 
Jacob and Esau. This would be my own translation. I'm glad we'll have somebody here who will appreciate that anyway. Genesis 25, beginning at verse 27. Hear the word of God. And the boys grew up, and Esau was a skillful hunter and fieldsman. But Jacob was a wholesome tent dweller. Now Isaac loved Esau because his game was in his mouth, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Then Jacob boiled his excuse me, then Jacob boiled pottage, and Esau came in from the field, and he was weary. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me gulp down that red stuff, I beg you, because I am weary. Therefore his name is called Red. And Jacob said, First of all, sell your birthright to me. And Esau said, Now I am about to die, so what is this birthright to me? And Jacob said, Swear to me at once. And he swore to him, and he sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob granted bread and lentil pottage to Esau, and he ate and drank and arose and departed. And so Esau despised his right of firstborn. And that's part of the reading of God's word. What does this have to do with feeling secure? What does this have to do with assurance of salvation? Well, there's two lessons here. And there's two sons here. I guess you can see what's coming. Obviously, we're going to learn one lesson from one son and another lesson from another. But if you want to bring the whole thing together, I think we can see the theme that's presented in this passage as it's understood with Christ as the focal point of all of Scripture. The theme is that although the reprobate swore away an insecure birthright, a secure birthright has been sworn by God. Though the reprobate swears away an insecure birthright, God himself swears a secure one. There's going to be a lesson here about perseverance and a lesson about preservation. Those are two words that are used, usually interchangeably in Christian circles, often enough in Calvinistic circles, but they don't mean the same thing at all. I want to show you a lesson about perseverance as we look at Esau and a gracious lesson about preservation as we look at Jacob. First of all, let's look at this insecure birthright sworn away by the reprobate Esau and see what we learn about perseverance. The scripture passage here this morning tells us that Esau despised the covenant. It's an interesting way for concluding this passage. Esau despised his right of firstborn. His very name characterizes him. Esau means a hairy man, a rough man, a wild man. And his name was changed from Esau to Edom. Edom means red in Hebrew. And the reason he was called that is because when he came in hungry from the field, he saw this red lentil pottage that his brother was cooking. He just had to have it. So much that he'd give up his right of firstborn even for one meal. And so his name was called red. So a change of name. A new character, something that will typify this man's life. The wild man, the red man. His character, he was a man of the open field, a harsh, cruel, self-indulgent, undisciplined, and materialistic person, according to the Bible. His immoral character was confirmed by Jewish writings. It's interesting, you read the book of Jubilees. He's called perverse from his youth, a man of evil thoughts who took women from Canaan, a violent man who even stole from his parents, 
Philo the philosopher said Esau was an unrestrained, lecherous, and impure person. The rabbinical writings call him a thief, a fornicator, and a blasphemer. They say that he gave his father dog's flesh and that he actually bit his own father. He committed five heinous sins on one day, the same day that he sold his birthright. Now all of that, of course, is extra-biblical. All of that is just accretions to the story. But all of it is true to the character of Esau. He may not have committed the particular things said, but he was that kind of man. And that's what he's known for. And yet, you know, as the one that received the, the right of firstborn, as the firstborn of his father, he should have been the acme of his father's strength. Now, there's that Hebrew expression that speaks of the, the high point of a father's strength. That's what a son should have been. The firstborn son should have been that. Yeah, but look at his history. His name characterizes him. His immoral character is infamous. But his history. The passage tells us it was a time of famine. If you look at chapter 26 in Genesis, you'll see it was a time of famine. And so Esau's out in the field and he's hunting. He comes in empty-handed. He's weary. He's hungry. Has to have something to eat. And so he eagerly submits to Jacob's proposal, to his cunning compact. I'll get the right of firstborn if you'll sell it to me for this pottage. What did it mean, the right of firstborn? A birthright. We uh, hear that word from time to time in the church. We read it in the Bible. What does it refer to? It refers to a double share of the father's inheritance, of course. The father has so much money, such an estate, that when he dies, it passes on to his sons. And the oldest son gets a double portion for good reasons in the Bible, which I won't discuss this morning. But the oldest son would have received a double share. Moreover, he would have received the succession of authority in the family. The oldest son would then have been the patriarchal head upon the death of his father. And in that day and age, he would have received the family priesthood as well. And, in this case, the promise of God made to the patriarch Abraham would have passed to Esau. The promise of Canaan and covenant fellowship with Jehovah. All of this would have been included in his birthright privilege. We know that a birthright could have been lost through misconduct. Later in the Bible we read that Reuben's was lost by promiscuity and his birthright was given to Joseph. But a birthright couldn't be arbitrarily reassigned. Here we read that the birthright would be sold. It would be treated like any other piece of merchandise, like a piece of property. The New Zoo Letters, things you probably don't read a whole lot during the week, the Nuzu letters provide um, ancient uh, literary background to this passage, for in them we read of a birthright being transferred to a younger brother for the cost of three sheep. Now in the case of the Nuzu's letters, that was just economic stupidity to sell your birthright for three sheep. But in the case of Esau, it was more than stupidity. It was apostasy from the prospect of God's covenant apostasy from the prospect of heaven. Esau regarded his birthright as of no value, you'll notice, unless it was profitable for the present life, unless he could immediately get some gain from it. Esau was the original pragmatist, the original existentialist, the man who lived for the moment. And he said, if I can't see that this is giving me an answer to my problems right now, I don't want this birthright. Who cares about it? 
So he bartered away a spiritual good for an earthly and a fading benefit. And you know, the terrible thing about it is the Bible says that Jacob said, you swear to me now. You swear. And he said, I'll swear. Now, we use that expression, you know, swear this and swear that. In that day and age, it was taken much more seriously. To take an oath meant to take a... Uh, to, to make a promise upon condition of self-malediction. I promise to do something, and if it isn't performed, let the Almighty do the following to me. So he even used God's name to swear away his birthright privilege. He even used the name of God, took an oath, and didn't hesitate to give up his birthright. And you want to see his indifference when he did that? Notice how the Bible goes on to say he didn't mourn he didn't come to his senses. He ate, then he drank, he got up and he departed. Got what he wanted, and that was it. And so, you understand why then Genesis says he despised his birthright? That verb in the Hebrew doesn't mean simply to uh, treat something lightly. It means to spurn it, to reject it, to be blasphemous with respect to it. So having despised the heir rights of Abraham, it isn't surprising that if you read later in Genesis, he didn't value connection with Abraham's kindred. He later married two Hittite wives and finally married his own cousin. I guess the last thing we need to say about Esau as we survey his name and his character and his history is this is all part of his divine destiny. The divine destiny that God had declared is seen to be unconditional and immutable in the case of Esau. He was physically and morally the twin of Jacob, his brother, and yet clearly he was a child of the flesh. He did not have a spiritual mind, did not have spiritual interest, did not have a commitment to the Lord, to his ways. Before his birth, there was that predictive declaration that the older brother would serve the younger brother. Genesis 25 shows us that. And Romans 9.11 says Esau was hated by God even before his birth. But Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. The amazing thing to me is to note the harmony here between God's decree with human responsibility. You don't see Jacob here doing everything he possibly can to be made right with God, to live according to the covenant of God, to please the Lord, and then God's saying, no, no, Esau, I hate you. You can't come into my presence. No, I won't have you, even though you've done everything I want you to do. No, it turns out that although God said he hated him in advance, Esau hated God and his wife. You see, there's always a harmony between human responsibility and divine sovereignty. And it's just so plain here if you read the text. But what I want to teach you, you knew that, good Calvinist that you are, you all knew that. What I want to teach you this morning is that the doctrine once saved, always saved, is a doctrine, as one of my seminary professors put it, right out of the pit of hell. Now you'll know how to correct that. Once truly saved, always saved is true. But what we usually think of when we hear that expression, that little slogan, once saved, always saved, is, well, if I just once say I'm a Christian or go through these motions or attend church for a while, then God will never reject me. If you believe that, then you have a false security. What the Puritans called a carnal security in your salvation. 
Because the fact that you once named the name of Jesus Christ doesn't mean that you belong to Him at all. In fact, on the day of judgment, Jesus will hear people who will call upon Him, Lord, Lord, and He'll say, I never knew you. Imagine those must be the most dreadful words to ever hear when we face Jesus and He says, I don't know who you are. Depart from me, you who work iniquity. You Esau's of the world who live for present pleasure, who don't see any value long-term for the covenant of God, who have no sense of perseverance. There's that word again. Perseverance. Perseverance means to hold on to the end, like an athlete who's running a race, who runs and runs and runs, and although his lungs are going to burst, he just keeps pushing till he gets to the goal. Athletes persevere, and Esau was not a spiritual athlete. He did not persevere to the end. He showed himself to despise the covenant of God, and you can be very sure he was not saved. The book of Hebrews tells us to persevere as Christians against an earthly mindset. Hebrews 12, verses 14 to 17, we read, Pursue sanctification without which no one will see the Lord, watching carefully lest anyone be excluded from the grace of God, lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his own birthright. For you know that even when he afterward desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. Esau, you see, is here the example of the apostate who abandons hope, the hope of glory for the sake of things that are seen, things which are not eternal. He was a materialistic man. He was a man whose priorities set things on this earth, things of the flesh, things for the here and now. Esau was the kind of man who wouldn't bother to come and spend three or four hours worshiping the Lord on the Lord's Day if he could stay at home and watch the NFL playoffs. He was not the sort of man who was going to suffer persecution if silence would just get him by by calling upon the name of the Lord in secret. He was the man who pursues his personal comforts rather than aiding others and living according to the requirements of God's Word. He was a profane person. A man who served his own belly. Philippians 3.19 Paul exhorts believers to press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling in Christ Jesus. And he says, in so doing, mark those who are enemies of the cross. And how does Paul describe enemies of the cross? Have you ever thought about that? What is it that makes somebody an enemy of the cross of Christ? He says, they are those whose God is their belly whose glory is their shame, whose end is destruction, who mind earthly things. Why is it that we press on for the prize in Jesus Christ? Why is it we mark those who mind earthly things? Because our citizenship is in heaven, Paul says. Our citizenship is in heaven. Now, there's a real abuse of that doctrine today, running around. Something that has a lot more in common with Plato than it does with Paul. The view that says, well, you know, we really live in this idealistic world of apple pie in the sky, and we're not interested in the practical things of life, economics and hard work and politics and education and culture and all the rest. Oh, no, no, we're citizens of a heavenly kingdom. That isn't what Paul meant at all. What Paul meant is that our loyalty and our citizenship our home was the kingdom of God, and therefore we live as citizens of that kingdom. Yes, we live in the presence of an evil age, but we live as holy people. 
in the midst of an evil age. And in all walks of life, we bring that to bear. The very theme of the book of Hebrews, you know, is the theme of persevering. Persevere, Hebrews says. Persevere. You see, the temptation was that Hebrew Christians in that day and age would go back to walking in their Old Testament Jewish ways. They'd renounce the Christian fellowship, break with the Christian fellowship, and just fit in with their Hebrew buddies. And so the book of Hebrews was written to force them to persevere and to warn them against the dreadful consequences of apostasying from the Christian faith. Are you a perseverer or are you an Esau? Are you complacent about your Christian life? Remember the story of Farmer Jones. Who, uh, whose testimony every Sunday evening in the testimony portion of the evening service was, well, I'm not making much progress in my Christian life, but I'm established. And the next week, good old ordinary Farmer Jones, who didn't get along with his neighbors or show much compassion, who didn't live a life that gave much glory to God, would stand up again in the evening service and say, well, I'm not making much progress in my life, but I'm established. Next week come the same old testimony. Not making much progress, but I'm established. One day, Farmer Jones taking his things to market in his wagon, and he got uh, stuck in some mud right up to the hubs of his wheels, and the pastor happened to be walking down the road. And you can imagine what he said. He said, well, Farmer Jones, I've seen you're not making much progress, but you're established. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of us have Christian lives that are like that, stuck in the mud. Very complacent to progress. God expects that you will pursue sanctification if you belong to Him and not show yourself to be an Esau. Well, this is a story about two sons, though. It's not just a lesson about perseverance. It's a lesson about preservation here. So we have to say something about Jacob before we end. See, what you expect, though, being good Americans who watch television commercials all the time, you expect to see the good guy and the bad guy, right? The story isn't that way, though. I'm sorry. This is a story about a bad guy and a bad guy. <laughs> you don't have Esau, the really bad son, and then Jacob, the really angelic good son who does everything right and pleases the Lord. No, as a matter of fact, Jacob hindered the covenant. It's amazing that this guy was saved. Just look at his name. You know what Jacob means? It means the supplanter. At his birth, he was clutching Esau's heel as he came out of his mother's womb, already trying to pull Esau back and get ahead of him. And so he was called Jacob. That is an interesting pun in the Hebrew. In Jeremiah 9, 4, where uh, the prophet wants to say, every brother deals craftily. It says, every brother, Jacob's his brother. Every brother tries to supplant his brother. Now, I told you that Esau's name was changed from Esau the wild man to Esau the red man. Amazingly, the Bible says Jacob's name was changed too. He was once the supplanter, but God eventually called him Israel. Israel, prince with God. At his conversion, his name was changed because his character was changed. Revelation 2.7 says that Christians have a new name a new character, which only their Savior knows. What's your name? Is it like Esau, changed to Edom? Or is it like Jacob, changed to Israel? 
How is it that God knows you? The character of Jacob is noteworthy. The Bible says he was a wholesome person, uh, meaning uh, he was an innocent sort of person, a tent dweller. He had a domestic personality. But his history was just as sordid as was Esau's. He wrongly supposed, you see, that God needed his crafty deceit. And so he took matters into his own hands when it seemed that, he, that God had perhaps forgotten his promise. God had told Rebekah, their mother, the two nations are in thy womb and the elder shall serve the younger. But here's Esau getting ahead in life and Jacob, he's just his homebody. And so Jacob decides, well, I think I can see a way through this thing. So he faithlessly pursues that Machiavellian philosophy any means to an end. He says, well, I'll get the birthright one way or another. And so although he should have freely satisfied his brother's hunger, I mean, if he loved his brother and really had the, the heart of the Lord, he would have gladly served him, but he didn't. And so ironically, note this, he desired a solemn confirmation of a divinely granted right from his wicked brother Esau. God had sworn that Esau would serve Jacob. Jacob wasn't convinced. And so he goes to wicked Jacob, and he's, I mean, he goes to wicked Esau, and he says, Esau, you swear, and then I'll believe it. He won't believe the word of God, but he goes to this apostate brother and asks him. Later on in Genesis 27, you notice he'll steal the blessing that his father would have given to Esau, and he stole that by deception. And so Jacob wasn't just the physical twin of his brother Esau, he was the moral twin of his brother too. He was just as lousy a personality, just as wicked a person as Esau. The form of the wickedness was different, but in the eyes of the Lord, they were on a par. They were twins. And yet he demonstrated true repentance toward God. You notice his confession in Genesis 32, I am not worthy of the least of all thy loving kindnesses and of all the truth which thou hast shown unto thy servant. Jacob came to his senses. Jacob knew that he was a wretch in the eyes of God. He deserved nothing at all. And so his divine destiny is confirmed as well. Despite his sinful unworthiness, he was mercifully saved and sustained by God. God granted him the promises. God converted him. God gave him a new name. God gave him a new character. And thus, for all of his hindrances to the covenant, God overcame them by his grace. Romans 9, For the children being not yet born, neither having done anything good or bad, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger. Even as it stands written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. You see that? How right in the book of Romans, Paul says, don't you see it can't be by works? Don't you know the story of Jacob and Esau? If you know the story of Jacob and Esau, you'll never be tempted to think that you're saved by any good thing you can do. Well, this is the lesson of preservation. I told you about perseverance. Athletes persevere. Strawberries are preserved. You understand that? Strawberries have a context, something that takes care of them, that preserves them. That's why we serve strawberry preserves. And I want to know whether you're like that strawberry being preserved by God. Saved by grace. Despite one's personal sin and transgression and indifference and failings, you know, our inheritance in God's kingdom can be assured. How is that so? You know, this is an amazing counterpart to the story in the New Testament about a birthright and the firstborn. Paul tells us that Christ is the firstborn of all creation. Colossians 1.15 Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For all things have been created by him and for him. 
I'm not going to get into a complicated theological discussion. How can Jesus be the firstborn of creation if he made everything? Well, by firstborn, Paul isn't using that word in the sense actually made, first of all. He means the one who inherits everything. The firstborn has the inheritance rights over all creation. And so Jesus is the firstborn of creation. Not only that, he's the firstborn in the realm of redemption. Colossians 1.18 goes on. He is the head of the body, the church, who was the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have preeminence, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And hence all the inheritance promises of God, the birthright, the honor of firstborn, belong to Jesus Christ. We aren't ever going to come into God's presence or inherit a place in his kingdom apart from Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, For all the promises of God are in him, Christ, in him, yes and amen. What good does that do you? If Jesus is the firstborn, if he's the one who receives all these blessings from God, how does that help me? Well, Romans 8 tells us, beautiful passage, that he, the Son, might be the firstborn among many brothers, and those whom he predestinated, he called and justified and glorified. You see, Jesus is firstborn in a family of brothers and sisters. And how do you get into that family? How do you become part of that family? Hebrews 12, 23 speaks of the church as the church of the firstborn, the church of Jesus Christ, the one who has birthright privileges in the kingdom of God. Romans 8 says, But you have received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and, catch this, joint heirs with Christ. Jesus is the firstborn. Jesus inherits all the things pertaining to the kingdom, all the blessings of God. But we, by adoption into that very family, are joint heirs with him. He's not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. And so all of the things that he inherits, he shares with us. God sent forth his son in order that he might redeem them that were under the law, that he might receive them through the adoption as sons. And because ye are sons, God sent forth the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. This is Father's Day. It's the day we can say, Abba, Father. And no, not about our earthly fathers, but about our heavenly Father. A heavenly Father who sees us in the midst of our sin and degradation and all of our filth and says, I'm going to adopt you. I'm going to bring you into my family. I'm going to make you a joint heir with my Son, Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy begat us again unto a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, unto an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fades not away, reserved in heaven for you. So says Peter in the opening of his first epistle. God has given us new life for the sake of an inheritance that he wants us to have. You know, the amazing thing is that inheritance isn't something that's just far off there. We go, oh, I hope, I hope, I hope that I'll finally get it. God's given a down payment of it. He doesn't have to adopt us into his family at all. He doesn't have to give us anything at all. He doesn't have to pay any attention to us at all. And yet he promises us everything. Inheritance in the kingdom. And then he goes beyond that and he says, I'll even guarantee it. Have you ever bought anything on time? You've gone into the department store and say, I'd really like to buy that. I can't afford it now. I'll give you a down payment. I'll give you an earnest payment. I'll be back. I'll pay the full price. Can you imagine God treating us that way? God saying, I don't want you to worry about this. I want you to know for certain. I'm going to give you inheritance in my kingdom. I'm going to make a down payment on that to you. To us, a down payment? We should be making down payments to him. We should be showing earnest to him. And yet 2 Corinthians 1.22 says, God sealed us and gave us the down payment of the Spirit in our hearts. 
Ephesians 1, in Christ, having also believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the down payment of our inheritance unto the redemption of God's own possession, under the praise of his glory. Are you sure you're going to be saved? God's made the down payment in your heart. The Holy Spirit living in your heart and testifying in your heart and comforting your heart and exhorting you to live the Christian life is that down payment that can make you certain and confident that you belong to him. That's why Paul teaches. Right after he says we are joint heirs with Christ, the firstborn of many, among many brethren, he goes on to say, who then can separate us from the love of Christ? Can anything at all, height or depth or any creature? Not at all. See, this story about inheritance is a story about security in God's grace. Salvation can be sure. And that's why it's so important that we are covenant theologians. Often we're covenant theologians in a very, I think, abstract and paper sense. You know, we believe in the covenant because we're not like the Baptists and we're not like this group and we're not like the dispensationalists. But covenant theology is something far more precious than all those theological debates, my friends. The Roman Catholic Church in the Middle Ages had a doctrine of God's sovereignty. Many people don't realize that, who have a very rough and ruddy history of the church in their mind. The Roman Catholic Church had a doctrine of God's sovereignty, but it was a spooky and mysterious and very non-comforting doctrine because God was so sovereign, said the Roman Catholic theologians, Occam and Duns Scotus, he was so sovereign that he could freely send the Virgin Mary to hell. Nobody can bind the will of God. He is sovereign, and that's what they understood by it. Well, I mean, if God could freely and sovereignly send the virgin to hell, what chance had a Martin Luther? What chance do I? What chance do you have if God could even send the mother of our Lord to hell? Protestant Reformation became very aware that God is a covenantal God, a God who binds himself to his own word, a God who makes covenant with man so that salvation can be assured. That God doesn't just have this willy-nilly doctrine and then abandon his people after they've done everything he wants. That's where the real crunch came. The really important and practical outcome of viewing things in terms of the covenant. That God has made a covenant and he has a firstborn son that has secured rights to the blessings of that covenant. And he has adopted us into that so that we are joint heirs with him. Well, the Roman Catholics say you can never be sure. You work and you work and you work and you can never be sure that you'll be saved. The Methodists and the Nazarenes and the Pentecostalists and many sects of the Baptists say that you can fall from grace. You live in constant insecurity that maybe I'm saved today, but tomorrow I won't be. And cultic groups like the Buddhists and the Jehovah's Witnesses and Scientology and religious science and the Mormons and the Divine Light and Mission and on and on and on say that you can personally earn your salvation, but anybody who stops and checks their track record knows they never will. Nobody will ever earn it. I praise God that the good news says, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. His oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my life gives way, he still is my hope and stay. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Let's pray. Lord God, God of grace, how we beseech you this day to teach us to persevere in our Christian lives and not to turn out to be like the Esau's of this world. And God, we thank you even beyond that for the lesson of Jacob that we've read of, that you preserve your people. How we thank you for your grace and the security of our salvation in our elder brother Jesus Christ. 
How we thank you that he is firstborn of all creation, firstborn from the dead, heir of every blessing in creation and redemption. We thank you that we are related to him. We take no credit for that. We know that it's not by works that we are saved. And yet we thank you that despite our sinfulness and pollution, despite our evil deeds, we can have security today in the down payment in our hearts of the Spirit that indeed we are the sons and daughters of God. Lord, thank you for this Father's Day blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.